morning and welcome once again to Mind Matters, our series of abridged talks and lectures. I'm Carol Meng. Today we will go into history books and learn about the failure of the nationalist China back in the early 20th century. Professor Park Scoble from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln in the U.S. has recently written a book revealing the critical weaknesses of its style of governing as well as the reasons why the government failed to control post-war hyperinflation. Professor Kobo was invited by the University of Hong Kong to give a talk on his new book entitled The Collapse of Nationalist China, How Chiang Kai-shek Lost China's Civil War. Uh, let me start out with some statistics. Uh, this is commodity prices uh, in nationalist China. And uh, the base uh, is January to June 1937, uh, where a mythical item would cost one kwai. And uh, the nationalist, of course, armies were defeated and retreated westward uh, to Sichuan province. And there uh, they lost most of the revenue sources from the east coast and started running fairly large deficits. Uh, and they began covering them by printing currency. And the result was inflation, so that when Pearl Harbor happened, uh, that mythical item of one quai would now be about 20 quai. And then uh, they were more isolated after Pearl Harbor, and things got exponentially worse. Uh, when the war ended in August 1945, you see there, that item cost 2647 So reset after the war, we're back on the East Coast, Shanghai, and... Uh, at first, the uh, prices were lower, but you notice that by uh, less than a year later, uh, they've actually surpassed that and uh, began increasing uh, rather rapidly. Uh, on the last day of Fabi, uh, August 21, before they adopted the ill-fated gold yuan, the item that cost you one kwai in 1937, 11 years later, would cost you about 5 million kwai. So that's hyperinflation. Now, I suspect most of the people uh, uh, online here are, are familiar with these statistics because they are not new at all. Actually, first encountered these statistics literally half a century ago when I was taking a graduate reading class with my mentor, Lloyd Eastman. And one of the kind of strange things about taking that class, um, looking at it now, is that at the time, especially on the Civil War, there were really virtually no academic books, uh, university press books. There were some memoirs, and there was a lot of polemic writing about the Who Lost China issue. But the one exception of that was this topic. Uh, already, when I took that readings class, there were three of very good books, Arthur Young's uh, The Advisor to the Nationalist Government, uh, on published with Harvard, Zhang Zhao, longtime head of the Bank of China, an official with MIT, and Zhou Xinxin, the Chinese inflation with Columbia in 1963. And they basically, they're all good, they all did different things, but they all basically told the same story. You print money, you have inflation and hyperinflation. And in the years since then, um, they... There have been some refinements, uh, Taiwan scholar Lin Mei Li, for example. But I don't think the picture of that I just described has really changed that much in all of those years. Now, my graduate mentor, Lloyd Eastman, the years I was in graduate school, was working on 
a couple of his classic studies um, of uh, the the Kuomintang government, including the Nanjing Decade. And then in uh, 1984, he published Seeds of Destruction, Nationalist China in War and Revolution, 1937-49. And in that, I think he tried to answer another question, what was the impact of hyperinflation? And he started with uh, two chapters, I believe, that dealt with the decline in the effectiveness and combat performance and morale in the Nationalist Army, especially after Pearl Harbor, and very much revealed in the Ichigo campaign that I'll talk about momentarily. Uh, and he then blamed a lot of that on uh, the financial situation of the government and inflation. In essence, uh, because the government could not pay uh, their military, uh, they essentially started turning uh, a blind eye to allowing the officers to pretty much sort of steal from the office, so to speak. Uh, they began pilfering um, uh, food, weapons, pay for soldiers who were deserted or had died, uh, and um, uh, medical supplies and everything were kind of pilfered and sold. And uh, you can call it um, corruption or greed, but you can also call it survival uh, because they simply could not live on their salary. Now, of course, the people at the bottom, the enlisted men, um, suffered the most because they did not have the clout to do that. And so increasingly, the the ordinary enlisted soldier found himself faced with malnutrition, uh, lack of ammunition and training and medical supplies, uh, and even pay. And so morale really uh, deteriorated. And uh, Eastman basically said, I'm quoting here, inflation was a major reason why corruption reached unprecedented levels and why the army became so dispirited and ineffective. In addition to that, they, uh, the corruption and the inflation also really impacted the ordinary peasant farmers of China because the government did not really have much interest in trying to tax uh, the peasants or farmers in their increasingly worthless currency, so they started to uh, directly requisition grain uh, with often dire consequences for um, the farmers. So um, we have uh, Eastman's refinement of understanding the meaning of this. But when I was in graduate school, I still thought there were a couple of very interesting unanswered questions. And the first one was, I mean, China won the war against Japan. They were on the victorious side. Why did this not really change the tra trajectory of inflation. If you remember those statistics, within a year after the war was over, uh, the level of prices had actually gotten higher than when Japan surrendered. Now, the argument during the war was the Chinese government lost urban areas where most of their revenue had been. But with victory, ports could reopen, tariff revenue should have revived. Uh, there was damage, but most textile mills were back in at least partial operation. Uh, harvests were good, both in terms of food and in terms of cotton. Uh, so in theory, um, things should have gotten better. And they were an allied with the United States. They got international aid, a lot of it from the United Nations Relief and Rehabilitation Administration, which provided direct aid, a lot of it funded by America. But um, China was the largest recipient of uh, such aid. 
Um, and yet it didn't happen. And um, an unpublished study done by the Ministry of Finance in October of 1946 noted, after short-lived deflationary pressure, prices did fall for a few weeks, the outlays of funds by the national government, the spending of American forces, and the inflow of funds from the interior resulted in inflationary spiral. The result, inflation hit Shanghai like a typhoon. And so the question is, couldn't this have been prevented? Why did it pick up so quickly? But there was another question. Um, the, everybody seemed to realize the policy of printing currency to cover deficits was on a disastrous track. It was really an insane policy. And the question was, why couldn't it have been stopped or altered? Uh, everybody thought it was sort of like a train wreck in the making. Uh, the train is heading down the tracks to a ravine where the bridge is out, and there are warning signs and barricades, but the conductor keeps stoking the engine and the speed picks up, and disaster was obviously looming. And the fact is, the inability of this policy to be modified significantly uh, baffled and disheartened many people, including some of the true believers in the John government. They began to have real doubts. So this gruff-looking man, uh, you probably recognize as uh, Claire Lee Chenault, advisor to China uh, before Pearl Harbor and head of the Flying Tigers, and he stayed there during the war. And I picked him out because he is a true believer. He deeply admired uh, Chiang Kai-shek and especially Madame Zhang. And when the war ended, uh, he left the military and decided to stay in China uh, and organize a commercial airline that he thought could really help the nationalist cause, the Flying Tiger Airline. Uh, and yet, things didn't go well. This is a letter he wrote on July 27th to General Albert Wiedemeyer. It may interest you to know that our airline payroll for the last two weeks weighed slightly over a ton in currency and that it took five men four days to count it into, out into bundles. And he went on to express to General Wiedemeyer deep uh, dismay at how difficult it seemed to really operate a business and do anything. He wanted to help China. He thought he could, but he just couldn't seem to get things going. Uh, he tried to remain hopeful. He concluded, I think that China is still a great country and that it would take a surprisingly small, well-directed effort at this time to channel its future along sound lines. But I still think you have this fundamental issue of nobody could seem to understand why a such a disastrous policy could not really be altered. Listening to Mind Matters, where we just had Professor Cobol from the University of Nebraska Lincoln in the U.S. telling us the difficulties the nationalist China was facing after World War II. Next, he will reveal what he found from the newly available archival sources and address why Chiang Kai-shek was unable to win the war against Communist China and to control hyperinflation. So I thought I had two kind of interesting questions uh, that I thought about when I was in graduate school. 
but it never uh, occurred to me that I might actually work on them at the time. Uh, I should say I started graduate school in 1968, which means, well, it means I'm very old, but you figured that out, uh, that it was the height of the Cultural Revolution. And what I started here as an assistant professor at University of Nebraska, uh, Mal was still alive and not for long, and I had yet to set foot in the PRC. Uh, and what I did finally go not long after that, I had to go as part of a U.S.-China People's Friendship Delegation uh, where you were uh, escorted around and stayed in friendship hotels and spent funny money. Frankly, it was good two decades before I did what I would call significant academic research in China. Now, I did go to Taiwan uh, as a grad student, but Taiwan was very different from today. It, Chiang Kai-shek was still alive. It was under martial law, and the, um, the archives were controlled by the Kuomintang Party, are closed by the Guomindang Party, not uh, under the government as they are today. But decades passed, and about 10 years ago, I decided that uh, I could actually work on these two questions. Uh, and there were three resources that I thought made this possible. Uh, there's a substantial amount of academic work done by scholars in China on Chiang Kai-shek, really beginning in the 1990s. I think the release of the Zhang Diaries really spurred this on. Uh, but basically, you see that this is based on a lot of solid academic work by Chinese scholars. I have a special thanks to Professor Wu Jingping of the Department of History at Fudan University. He invited me to several conferences. So you find those in the acknowledgments. Uh, and I had an opportunity to meet Chinese scholars and also to present my own research and get feedback and suggestions. And without that, I would not have done this uh, book. The second uh, resource were the archives at the Hoover Institution at Stanford. For various reasons, Hoover has emerged as probably the best place for archival work on Republican China outside of East Asia. Uh, the bibliography cites about a dozen collections which were essential uh, the most important were the TV Sung papers, uh, the Arthur Young papers, and the H.H. H. Kong papers. Arthur Young is from the financial advisor to the um, Kuomintang government. Uh, and those were just invaluable, and you can see that in the footnotes. Resource three was material now available in Taiwan. And I'm only going to focus on one, uh, one item, but it's a very important item. Uh, this, the Zhang uh, Kai-shek chronological events. Zhang had a secretariat that recorded everything he did. And, um, this was reprinted in a photo reprint edition in 82 volumes by Guo Shiguan in Taiwan, Taipei. And, um, it is, each volume is several hundred pages. It's a photo reprint. It's not always easy to read. Uh, and it covers, each volume covers about two or three months. Uh, and I actually read this um, in the Harvard Yanjing Library over several summers because I had the full run. And I want to just, a special thanks to Grace Wong, who wrote an article in Modern China in 2010 that alerted me to this source. And what it is basically is everything Chiang Kai-shek did every day from the time he woke up to when he went to bed. And Zhang is very elusive, and I think even with the diaries, it's really hard to
to figure out what he was thinking uh, in, you know, the inner John. But this tells you what he was doing or also what he wasn't doing, which is consulting financial officials. Uh, he would start out in the morning. He would get up. He'd have Bible study or read the Confucian classics, self-study, who he met with. Uh, it would have telegrams he sent, reports he issued, reports he read, uh, re uh, summaries of meetings he had with different people uh, who he had lunch and dinner with. And then it would often conclude with something like went strolling with Madame Zhang or um, a tutoring session with Zhang Jingguo and um, uh, on the Confucian or Chinese culture. So this was these three sources were really invaluable, and I felt that I could now finally um, uh, deal with these two questions. So the first, uh, why didn't uh, victory over Japan make a difference? And I decided to start with the Ichigo campaign. And um, the Ichigo campaign was 1944-45. Uh, it was actually the largest campaign by the Imperial Japanese Army in its entire history in terms of numbers. And I think I'll just read Han, Hans von der Van description from his last book. Ichigo's forces slashed through nationalist armies as if they did not exist clearing them from the provinces of Hunan, Hunan, and Guangxi. By October 1944, Sichuan was the only large Chinese province still in nationalist hands. A Chinese collapse appeared a distinct possibility. So that's important because, uh, first of all, it had a big impact on the economic situation. It cut the territory of free China in half, and as the retreating armies moved into Sichuan, uh, they now had to be fed and grain could only be, uh, uh, gotten, uh, or taken from, uh, farmers in Sichuan. And this really, uh, was a burden on them. Uh, and, but it was also psychological. Um, people in China, um, assumed that the war would go on much longer than it did. Uh, they did not know about the atomic bomb. They did not know that the emperor would broadcast a surrender speech on August 15th. Uh, from the standpoint of China, the Ichigo campaign meant that when 1945 started, uh, Japan actually controlled more territory than ever in China. And uh, they assumed things would drag on. And given the way things are going, people might not survive. But there's also the psychology of hyperinflation uh, when you were paid in Fabi, it's hot money. You got to get rid of it immediately and you go out and you buy silver, gold, whatever, if it's, even if it's illegal, you buy textiles to hoard or even something like a bag of mill flour, which has storage issues. But you got to buy something to get rid of that money. And I think because that psychology didn't change, you notice if you go back to that first table, uh, the inflation actually increases between January and August of 1945. They just weren't expecting victory. Now, Arthur Young, the financial advisor, uh, wrote up a series of, uh, or he wrote a report in July 45, explaining how he thought uh, they could get out of this predicament. First of all, he assumed an amphibious landing on the coast of China, which had been planned, would actually occur. Of course, it didn't. Asako, the uh, uh, alliance or the organization 
between the U.S. Navy and uh, Milton, I mean, uh, Dai Li, um, was training the operatives in Fujian province who would operate behind enemy lines as late as June to support this. The Japanese were expecting it. They redeployed their troops uh, in Fujian and other areas, anticipating it. And Arthur Young thought that a successful landing would lead to an opening uh, of an international port or more than one. Commodities would flow in, and uh, this would break the cycle of hyperinflation because orders would unload their goods, and um, and things would really change for the better. He also thought this would allow for the orderly withdrawal of the Wang Jingwei currency. The currency issued by the Wang Jingwei regime was used in most of occupied Central and South China. And finally, he assumed that military spending could be curtailed after Japanese surrender. Unfortunately, every one of these assumptions turned out to be wrong. Surrender was very sudden, which means no, no Guomindang forces were in place. U.S. had to airlift them and send in Marines to occupy many of the coastal cities. Uh, the exchange for the Wang Jing notes was a disaster. The government uh, gave a very a bad exchange rate so that they were virtually worthless. And all of a sudden, people in the occupied area needed Fabi. They had two months. Uh, to find, and so they unloaded all of their gold and silver and uh, other items to officials referred to sometimes as vultures who swooped in from Sichuan and um, started buying all of this stuff. And it set off another round of inflation. Uh, the American troops came in and started spending money, which also strained things. But, of course, the biggie was Chiang Kai-shek's decision to go full throttle with a military solution to uh, dealing with the communist. And Arthur Young quickly realized that nothing was going to stop that. Uh, this is from his private diary on May 8, 1946. The Generalissimo recently raised the army budget by a handwritten order from 90 to 170 billion monthly. That is dictatorship. But I think he realized then that um, uh, this isn't going to, um, uh, the military expense is going to go up and not down. Uh, and so I used the phrase botched liberation in describing how the war ended and how the inflation psychology continued very quickly. But there was a second question I asked. Why couldn't the policy of printing banknotes be altered? And despite widespread awareness that printing press approach to financing government was leading to disaster, no one could change that trajectory. And I attribute this to the style of leadership of John Kai-shek. He was an authoritarian ruler whose centralized control in his person. Eastman noted that even in the Nanjing period, he kept so many job titles, so he had to decide everything. And he was a very stubborn man who did not like hearing bad at uh, people telling he was making mistakes. And so he tended to stick to policies even when they weren't working. But he also had a um, tendency to set up rival groups with duplicate roles to encourage competition, which gave him the ultimate authority. And this was all the way through the government. Uh, one example is an intelligence work. Um, there was the Juntung in the military, headed by the infamous Dai Li, and the Zongtung in the Guomindang party, headed by the CC clique. 
and they were bitter rivals. They spent almost as much energy competing with each other. And one of the results of this style is that John can keep them from becoming too powerful. Uh, and at the same time, though, it also means they're often uh, not effective. And in this case, both the Japanese and the communists uh, infiltrated almost all levels of the Kuomintang establishment, uh, in part because of this uh, style. But when it came to finance, uh, the rivalry was a little closer to home. Uh, these two men uh, were key financial officials from really 1927-28 all the way through the end of the war against Japan. On the right, of course, is T.D. Song Sung So Wan, Madame Chiang Kai-shek's brother, Harvard-educated uh, and uh, generally acknowledged to be brilliant, uh, which uh, he probably was, or he definitely was. Uh, the man on the left is H.H. H. Kong, married to... Uh, Sun Ailing, uh, uh, Madame Chang's uh, sister, and he was identified and studied at Oberlin and Oberlin in China. And a lot of the book details how these two men became bitter rivalries that went on and affected the entire uh, bureaucracy. Generally speaking, Kong was more pliable. He went along with Chiang Kai-shek, uh, and when he asked for more money, he gave it to him, and John liked that. Song was much more um, often opposed to Zhang's views. He was more hot-headed, uh, uh, but he often um, uh, got into trouble. In fact, quite a bit of trouble with Zhang, where he would be sidelined. Uh, and but the the writer was so bitter that ultimately neither man uh, would challenge Zhang. That's just the way things went, um, and. Uh, even Song, who knew better, would uh, just go along and not try to um, uh, change things. Arthur Young figured this out very quickly in his private diary on February 18, 1946. It is a great pity for China that Zhang does not understand finance and will still take action without consulting those who do. He feels that those who predicted financial collapse before are wrong and that it will not happen. He got the country through eight years of war, and now he wants it is he wants his own way with spending and finance, and he had set it up where he would get his own way. Now the Song and Kong rivalry was bitter and very personal, carried on even after they left China for the United States. Uh, when Kong was forced out for various reasons, uh, Zhang finally decided he was too much of a political liability. Song then started facing criticism in the legislative UN and from the CC clique. And John let this happen because he did not want Song to get out of control. He always wanted to have a counter. But what the, the Shirley Galban uh, reveals, this is that daily diary of John, is that as the value of Fabi spiraled out of control in 1946 and 47, John rarely met with financial officials. He was heavily focused on military matters and uh, party politics. And uh, he was very active. He traveled all over, meeting with military commanders. But uh, the, the Ministry of Finance, Minister of Finance had trouble getting an appointment. And so the centralization of all policy in the hands of an authoritarian ruler created this problem. His stubbornness in clinging to the printing press approach 
led to finance to finance governing shortfalls continued uh, until finally uh, disaster occurred and they had to switch to uh, the Goldman reform, which is covered in the book. I haven't discussed it here, but that proved to be a complete disaster. That was Professor Pars Kobol from the University of Nebraska Lincoln in the U.S. I'm Carol Meng, and I invite you to join me next Sunday morning on Mind Matters.